all in our has been paid for by the WZWA Network. WA Network. I'm your host with the most on the West Coast, California and Ferry. What a joy and honor, a privilege to be with you all once again. And speaking of a joy, honor and privilege right here, right now, I have the opportunity to sit down and learn about this man's career right here, right now. I'm very excited to talk to the man with the best right hand in professional wrestling history, the original power of the punch. He is the one, he's the only, he's Bob Cook. How are you, sir? I appreciate you having me on, and thanks for that accolade, even if it's not true. I believe it is true, sir. Um, but uh, well, that makes uh, one of you. <laughs> I think Eric Watts also agreed with me. Um, it always starts somewhere, Bob. Uh, right at the beginning, I always ask everyone this for the first question. I'm sure, you've been asked it many times before. How did you become a fan of professional wrestling before you got in the business? I moved to Florida from Michigan in 1975, and I met a kid named Dale Dibler, who, amazingly, I still know his name, and we're friends on Facebook. Unbelievable. <laughs> but uh, he wanted to go home one day when we were playing basketball. It's like 7 o'clock, and he's like, hey, I got to go home. And I'm like, what do you got to go home? It's light out. I want to go watch wrestling. And I thought, you know, I was only like 10 years old or 11 years old. I said, wrestling? What do you want to watch that for? I went home with him, watched it, and fell in love with it instantly. Terry Funk was going crazy. Gordon Sully was calling the action. And I wanted to be a wrestler. Oh, well, there you go. I mean, if Terry Funk's on the show, then you're going to be sold immediately. Um, <laughs> uh, cool. So uh, you become a fan. You're hooked, as you said. Uh, I, I, I want to know how, how it came to be that you ended up being trained by the great Malenko and uh, Dean, of course, as well. Uh, and also, can you tell me a little bit about the school? Well, I just got lucky. You know, they used to have wrestling at the Armory in Tampa every Tuesday night for like 30, 40 years where the championship wrestling from Florida would have their Tuesday night show. And I was coming out of the Armory one night. I actually moved to Tampa with the intentions of being a wrestler with a friend after I graduated from high school. No idea how I was going to do it. And uh, I went to the Sportatorium, which is where they taped the Florida Championship Wrestling TV show. And I asked an old wrestler named Gordon Nelson how do you become a wrestler? And he said, well, you got to be in good shape to come in for a tryout, which in those days meant, you know, break a leg, smack you around, discourage you. And the next week I went to the armory and I came out and there was a flyer on my card that said, become a pro wrestler, travel the world, make big money. It was a great Malenko school. And I went there the next day and started training the next week. Awesome. And I also learned from Joe Malenko. Of course, of course, Joe Malenko as well. Um, so, what was the school like? I've I've heard different. I've had a few people on the show that uh, went through that school. What was that school like, and, and how was that experience? Well, for me, it was great. I mean, I was only eighteen years old. I just graduated from high school, and I, uh, I mean, the, the place left a lot to be desired. It was an old mattress factory where they still made mattresses in the front, but in the back they had two rings: a big ring and a small ring. Yeah, there was holes in the walls, holes on the floor, rats running around. It was not the best condition. It wasn't the performance center, I'll tell you that. But the training was awesome. I and mean, the great Malenko was a master of the art. And from day one, he smartened us up. 
or me or our class. And he made you want to learn each week. He taught you a little bit each week. And the next week you'd go over what you went over the week before, which you always left wanting to learn more. He didn't beat you up. He didn't browbeat you. He didn't slap you around, even though he could have, he didn't, you know why? Cause he wanted you to come back and learn. And that's what I did. And every week I wanted to learn more. Excellent. Excellent. And I'm sure, you know, a lot of people that were trained there would have preferred a, the different kind of rat to be hanging around, but, uh, uh well, uh, just, well they, they, they came along now and then, but just don't marry them. I learned that. <laughs> good call. Good call. Uh, research that I did tells me that through, uh, once you've finished and completed training, the first match took place on December 17th, 1981 against somebody named the masked terror. Is that correct? That's right. I know his first name was Will. I don't remember his last name. It's the only match I ever practiced from beginning to end. Him and I went to the school every week because we trained at the same time. And we went over the, the match. It's like a 10-minute match. We went over the whole thing from you know the beginning to the end over and over and over. And it was in front of him. It was in a moose lodge. The ring was set up out by a lake. People sat in lawn chairs. And I got paid 20 bucks and all the barbecue I could eat. So it was the first match. Of my first match. My first match was the first match. But then the next week, I was in the main event of the show at a high school uh, with a guy named uh, Lewis. No, Tom Laxton. Sorry, Lord Tom Laxton. Fantastic guy. He was a Cactus Jack before Cactus Jack, which means he was nuts. And we wrestled Dean and Joe Malenko in the main event. So, you know, hey, can't get better than that. That's it. There's quite a rise uh, from match one to match two. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I got 50 bucks for that one. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. You didn't just double your money. You got a little bit more than that. That's excellent. Yeah. Um, during these early days, uh, I'm wondering um, how long it took you to start to develop that punch that I was was uh, hyping up about that, that the, you know, the, the greatest right hand in, in professional wrestling history, as far as I'm concerned. Well, you know, like a lot of kids, even today, but not to the extreme that we see them do it today, but I did the backyard wrestling stuff when I was a kid with a friend of mine named Mark Starkey. I'm using that name because I'm still friends with him. We're having a, a get together this week with a bunch of childhood friends that I've known for 45 years. People who helped fuel my love for wrestling. They took me to wrestling shows. I went to wrestling shows with them as we were when we were kids, teenagers and whatever. And we did the backyard wrestling, Mark and I. And we did a lot of that at the shows too, before the matches and stuff, and people would watch us. And I learned to do, throw a punch doing that. I copied guys that grew great punches like Terry Funk and Jerry Lowe and Dick Murdoch and Killer Carl Cox. And, you know, and I tried my best to emulate as, as they do. I have a saying, it's called watch copy perfect. Watch guys that know what they're doing, copy how they do it, and perfect it as your own. And you can, there's no excuse to throw a bad punch. If you can practice a moonsault 200 times so you don't hurt the guy, but it looks like you do, then you can practice a punch 200 times so it looks like you hurt the guy and you don't. If you care, that's the problem. No one cares nowadays. It's not important to have a good punch because everybody knows it's fake. Even though the guys are beating the crap out of each other nowadays. In the old days, I know I'm rambling, but in the old days, the fans believed, most of the fans believed in the moment. And we weren't hurting each other. Today, the fans still don't believe, and guys are hurting themselves all the time. Who's the mark now? I know what you mean. I was watching a match that you had with Arn Anderson uh, earlier tonight. Uh, and because I've been watching a lot of current day stuff, when I saw it, you were on the ground and he was stomping on you. 
And I was like, wow, that that looks real. I can't believe like I've gone so long without seeing wrestling in this way that it actually made me feel like, oh my gosh, like this is, where did we go wrong? <laughs> Things have changed so much. Um, but yeah, everything was believable. Yeah, and he didn't hurt me in that match at all. Nothing he did hurt. Maybe a couple of the bumps I took hurt. Not too bad because those rings in WCW in those days were really good. And I was talking to somebody about that the other day, that match with Arn. I, I always, when I went in a dress room, I would always just kind of find a spot in a corner and, you know, just be quiet and mind my own business. And the night I wrestled Arn was at the Greensboro Coliseum. And I was behind the locker where I use, where I chose to sit. And Arn was on the other side of the locker. And Flair, I heard Flair come up to him and ask, who you got tonight? And he said, I'm working with Bob Cook. And, and Flair says, oh, he's a great hand. You'll have no problem. And Arn said, yes, he is. And I know that don't mean a lot to a lot of people, but it, he didn't know I heard that. It made me feel like a million bucks if they thought that, you know. Maybe they were lying to each other. I don't know. <laughs> no, the highest compliment right there from AA and Ric Flair, they would know. So that would have felt really good. Um, I, I wanted to also ask you, kind of like segue from, uh, you know, talking about your career, but ask you, who else do you think throws a really good punch that you've seen over the years? Over the years? Or now, yeah. uh, <laughs> over the years, to me, the greatest puncher of all time is Jerry Lawler. When he's on, at his best, Jerry Lawler was the best because he didn't throw it. Most guys throw a punch one way, like Randy Savage had a great punch, but he did it one way and he had a great jab, but he only did it those ways. Jerry Lawler could do roundhouses, uppercuts, straight to the nose, straight to the jaw, oh, you know, forehead punches, mounted punches, and jabs, and they all look great. That's a great puncher. When he was on, I'm saying, like you watch his matches with Jer uh, Bill Dundee, Dutch Mantel, Terry Funk, of course, Dick Bockwinkle, some of the most brutal looking matches of all time when they're not hurting each other at all. The art. That's Make it. it look real without being real. Make it stiff without being stiff. Look stiff, not be stiff. <laughs> I wrestled all kinds of legends in my time. The Road Wars, the Steiners, none of them asked me to hit them harder. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I totally get Nobody you, wanted to get hit harder. No, definitely not. They understand um, that it's a work. Yep. Yeah, and uh, that art is obviously lost these days. I'm going to ask oh, you yeah, a little definitely. bit about uh, current day wrestling a bit later on. Um, but I wanted to kind of skip to the late 80s. And can you please tell me a little bit about your feud with Rick Ryder? Oh, wait, no, I trained Rick. Uh, the first time I met Rick was at another a friend's house who was his brother-in-law or maybe going to be his brother-in-law. I don't talk to that guy anymore, though. If I ever see him, well, let's not talk about what will happen. But anyways, uh, I met him at this guy's house, and Rick's sitting in a chair, and he's got his, ha his head in one of those halos, his neck in a halo. You know how from yeah. neck surgery? Yeah. And he's like, hey, I want to be a wrestler. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you, nuts? <laughs> anyways, but I, uh, I trained him. And we just had fun matches. A lot of people still talk about them today here in Florida for 10 years. We had every kind of match you could imagine. Bull rope matches, chain matches, cage matches, death matches, street fights, blah, 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 tape piss. And they were just a blast. You know, the kind that, you know, you're not hurting each other, but everybody thinks you are. And the only time you might get hurt is when you accidentally cut yourself to bleed, you know, accidentally on purpose. Let's not tell that story. Fair enough. Yeah, Rick's my favorite of all time to wrestle. Because we did yeah. it for years all over Florida and, you know, main events, semi-main events on indie shows. But, yeah, he's my favorite. 
Awesome, awesome. Uh, another thing I came across in my research, uh, is it true that you uh, were Boris Malenko's opponent in his last match? Yes. I was also Joe Malenko's tag team partner in his last match. A couple of years ago, we did it. The, the but, uh, 2017 yeah, it was, match. Uh, was that when it was? Jeez, uh, yeah, 2017. Well, I feel even older now. <laughs> but the Armory in Tampa it was even me and Joe. But uh, yeah, we did a show here in Florida, 89 to 92 or whatever around called Suncoast Pro Wrestling. I played the mass superstar at the request of the Malinkles for anybody who questions why I took the mass superstar gimmick. Because the great Malenko, someone who I love and respected like a father, called me one morning and said, Bob, we're starting a TV show. We're going to call it Suncoast Pro Wrestling. I want you to be the top heel and I want you to be the mass superstar. What do you say to that? I said, no, what are you, crazy? Of course I said yes. That's how that started. But anyways, Malenko's last match was against me and my partner or uh, manager at the time, Penelope Paradise, who was a lady wrestler, obviously, against the great Malenko and Frankie Reyes, who's still a dear friend, who's a referee. But that's how it all, you know, I had to follow the storyline to get to the match. But yeah. that was one of those matches. It's a double-edged sword, you know, because you love the guy. I remember being so happy to be part of the last match, but then crying in the dressing room afterwards, knowing it was the last match. And also knowing a lot of the reasons because his health was failing and whatever. But I'm still honored to, to be part of that, you know. And there was like 20,000 people there. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't 20,000 people there, but no, it was on but, TV. Well, that's good. I, I thought it would be important to bring that up because, you know, obviously he's so legendary and, 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 and so well-known um, and, you know, a, an honor bestowed on you to be a part of that. Um, yeah, and I got to work with him a lot of times through the years, you know, on shows. He, he started the first TV show I ever did was a show called IWWA Wrestling that Malenko had started. He found a money mark. You know, it was a brief TV show, but I was on that, and I got to work with him and his sons on that and throughout the years. So always an honor to work with both. And you asked who my favorite wrestler was, Rick Ryder, but who's the greatest wrestler I've ever wrestled? Dean Malenko. So that's the answer to that question you didn't ask yet. <laughs> that would have been later on yeah um but that's cool um okay uh so another question i had uh you know in the 80s when things are flying high uh how crazy could your schedule get when you know you were at your busiest uh, you know it wasn't as crazy as the superstars but you know all of us guys the guys that they considered tv people or jobbers a term i hate by the way uh, we did a lot of traveling in cars. We drove everywhere we went unless until we worked for WWF in 95, they flew us everywhere, but I didn't mind driving because it just meant longer time away from my wife. <laughs> and that's always a good thing. That's why I was married for so long. I was never home. And then I got home and all of a sudden, Hey, it's time to get a divorce. <laughs> that's a pain. <laughs> um, uh, bringing it to 1988 and 1989, you spend a heap of time working on uh, NWA World Championship Wrestling, and boom, you, you're working with the Midnight Express, the Stein and Sting, Arn Anderson, as we already said, rock and roll. Um, how was this experience for you? Because uh, this is, you know, a whole bunch of great names and a whole bunch of great matches to have. Well, for me, it was just fun. You know, I knew my place. I wasn't there to be anything but what I was. And I was a five to seven minute guy on TV to make them look as best as I could. Not that they needed my help, 
but I did the best and I, I never had a problem with losing it. Only an idiot has a problem with losing in a business that's not really winning or losing. Even though they could have beat me, I've never really lost a match or never really won a match. But um, it was all fun. And I had wrestling, you know, wrestled with guys long before WCW with championship wrestling from Florida, where I got to, you know, work with Mike Graham and Steve Kurt and Kevin Sullivan and Bugsy McGraw and blah, 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 a whole list of guys, Lex Luger and a bunch before WCW. For, for me, it was just all fun. I loved it. I never had a problem with any of it. Yeah, it sounds like it would have been fun. Uh, <laughs> I loved being on the road, and we always traveled with people, and I always traveled with people I like. Strange, right? <laughs> so we all got along. We all got in trouble, but we had fun. That's good. That's good. And uh, I guess, you know, during this time, your, your, your job is to put people over, make them look good. Uh, and I, 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 wa I want to give you the opportunity here to, to kind of tell the layman out there that doesn't quite understand, um, you know, what attributes do you need to be good in a role that you were playing? Well, I don't really, I mean, for me, you just had to know how to work, you know, and, and that's the problem. A lot of guys didn't know how to work and there's the way it always is, you know, some guys are better than others or whatever. And I was far from the best, but for my job, I was adequate, you know, <laughs> But I don't know if there's any special talent. You just basically have to go there with no ego and be glad you're there. Appreciate the opportunity to be there because it is an opportunity, you know. And I had four opportunities in WCW to do more. Dusty gave me and I screwed them all up. So who's to blame? Not the wrestling business, not drugs, not alcohol, not Vince McMahon, me. What was it that, um, what were those opportunities and why didn't it work out? Well, it, again, it falls on me. I remember one time Dusty called me in the hallway and he goes, Bob, I want to put you in a tag team with Tom Pritchard. You know who Tom Pritchard is, right? Yes. Dr. Tom Pritchard. Before he went on to be the Heavenly Bodies with Jimmy Backlund, uh, Jimmy Del Rey, you know. Uh, and he asked me if I wanted to do it. I said, of course I want to do it. And he says, but I want you to get in a little better shape. And I said, okay, Dusty, I will. Later that night, what was I doing? Drinking in a bar like I always did drinking Mountain Dew like I always do and still do. And the opportunity just passed me by. I understand. And he gave me another opportunity. I was going to be the tag team partner with Buddy Lee Parker as the new state patrol. Same thing. Get in a little better shape. Screwed it up. And then I was, I was originally supposed to, and Mark Canterbury, who, you know, Henry Godwin was on Hannibal's show a couple of days ago. And he tells the story of, I was supposed to be his partner uh, instead of Tech Slashinger, but I hurt my knee, and so that didn't work out. And and then I was supposed to be uh, a tag team with Joe Cruz as the new Assassins, and Jody Hamilton, the real Assassin, was going to be our manager. We even went to the power plant and trained with Jody and DDP and other people. You know, he's showing it, showing us old school tag team techniques and stuff. But it all fell back on getting a little better shape, do this, do that, and I didn't do it. And you know, it's all my fault. <laughs> I understand. But bro. at least the um, opportunities were there. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in a lot of the, the role that you're, you're playing there, uh, there, there must be occasions, you know, where you're working, you know, these uh, five to seven minute matches on TV. And there must be occasions where you're working with somebody who's relatively quite green um, and they're getting the push because I guess maybe they have a certain look, etc. cetera. Uh, is there anybody that was particularly difficult to make look good during that time? Uh, not really. No, you know, 
I used to be the guy that would give tryouts to a lot of the guys, you know, to see if they're going to be you know, like Sean Waltman. I uh, had his tryout match. He asked for me specifically because I knew Sean since he was a kid. He used to go to wrestling shows with me before he got into business. But and I got back. I, I say I like this. I like to say I got Marcus Bagwell's job because again they gave me his tryout match and I went out there and we had a really good match and he got his job. You know, but I really Marcus is the one who did it. But I'm just saying. And then there's a time I wrestled a guy named Derek Dukes. And because most of the guys are respectful, you know, like Marcus was respectful, Sean, of course, because we're friends. And Derek Dukes was a jerk. You know, we go in the dressing room and Magnum TA is like, okay, Bob's, you're working with Bob. And Magnum even said, he goes, Bob's the one that should be getting the full-time job, but this is who you're working with. And the guy was a jerk. And I went in the ring and I ate him up. And I'm not a tough guy, you know. I just know how to work and I know the the inner workings of the business we didn't talk about a lot back then you knew the finish and maybe a couple other things but you didn't go over the whole match you didn't practice it so we got in a ring and you know when you lock up with somebody you know if you go to do a move their natural instinct if they're trained properly is just go with it and then you know they counter moves reverse moves you know and i just cut them off for everything get the headlock you do something i reverse it and ate them up and made them look bad but made myself look really good and he didn't get the job so Treat people with respect and other people will show respect to you. That's what I say. Absolutely. And it's interesting that uh, Sean Waltman ended up kind of doing the same thing that you did for him. He ended up being the guy someone would have a tryout match with and he'd either go this or this after the matchup. Um, yeah. Uh, how, how did you find well, you made a lot more money than me. <laughs> he must have made some good friends. Um, uh Jungle Jim Steele, Eric Watts, guys like this. Um, how did you find working with them? I can only remember working with Jim Steele once. I don't really remember much about it. I know it was a very short match. I don't really remember anything about the guy, but Eric was great. Eric was always very respectful, and I, he was in a tough spot. You know, he was a young guy coming into business. His dad was in charge of the company, so he had that against him. But he handled it great, in my opinion. You know, he never showed ego. He never, you know. And we always had good matches. And his dad even uh, put me on house shows to work with Eric in the beginning to, to a little bit. And he, he wanted me to show him how to throw a punch. And I, you know, I helped him learn how to throw a punch a little bit. I'm not a very good teacher, but if Bill wants to ask you to do something, you do it, you know. Absolutely. But Eric's great, yeah. Um, actually, now that I, I, it's just kind of dawned on me, it wasn't in my line of questioning, but were you there for the incident between Eric Watts and Rick Rude backstage? Did you happen to see that wrestling match that they had in front of all the boys? No, I, I don't. If I was, I don't remember it. And I, I'm sure I would remember that because I remember a couple of things like that. But no, I wish I would have been there when Vader got beat up because I hated him. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, what was it about Vader that rubbed you the wrong way? I don't know everything. <laughs> he was a jerk, complete jerk. He treated people like crap. He beat up guys every week. He hurt guys every week. He was constantly told to stop hurting guys. And he didn't listen. He didn't care. He had no respect for anybody. Didn't appreciate what guys did to him. I'm still friends with a guy named Rick Thames. You can watch the match on uh, YouTube. Uh, I was ribbing him, Rick. I'm sitting next to Rick and he has to work Vader. I'm like, boy, I guess we'll uh, call your girlfriend or whatever and let you know what hospital you're in. You know, just messing with him. Invader comes in, he goes, Don't worry about a kid, it'll be fine. He gets in the ring, punches him in the nose, breaks it. Blood everywhere. 
comes back to the dressing room. Rick's laying on the floor, bleeding. Vader comes in and goes, ah, you'll be all right. He didn't care. That's the way he was. Just a jerk. You mean, you, you know the story where he broke that guy's back? Uh, Joe Thurman. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I was the next match out after that match. And I was wrestling the Z-Man who was like, you know, ah, night off. He's great. And Vader came back through the curtain. A lot of people don't know this. I like to tell this story because it's Vader and I don't like him. But uh, he came back to the curtain. He sat down on the ground and he started crying. And because I never talked to him much, I asked, I thought to myself, is he crying? Because he realizes after all the times he's been told to stop hurting guys, he's finally going to lose his job. Or does he actually feel bad that he just crippled a guy, basically? I don't really know the answer because, like I said, I had to go out. And I really don't care about Vader's feelings. But <laughs> so people, Vader was crying after that. Uh, fair enough, Roy. Uh, and uh, I, I wanted to really ask you about working with Ric Flair. Uh, as you had mentioned earlier, um, him telling Arn that you're a good hand and Arn agreeing. It must have been great to get in the ring with a nature boy. Tell me about that. It was, but at the time it happened, I didn't want to do it. I was, uh, you know, who David Penzer is, right? He, yes. He's a ring announcer for TNA still and, and does a lot of yeah. stuff, real estate agent. But uh, back then he was a guy who did a lot for Jody Hamilton. Jody was the guy who set up the TV matches most of the time. And Dave just did a lot for Jody. And uh, Dave comes up to me and he goes, hey, you're working with Flair tonight. And I said, what? I don't want to work with Flair. And he said, what do you mean? I Jody's you know, trying to find out who wants to work with Flair. And I said, you'd love to. And I said, I don't want to work with Flair. He's Ric Flair. What if I hurt him? What if something happens? I'll be the most hated guy in the business, you know? But that's my idea of it, right? It wasn't like, oh, great, I'm wrestling Flair. I was like, I don't want to hurt. What if I hurt the guy? What if I make a mistake? And uh, we went out there and, you know, it wasn't a long match, but it was fun. It was great. It was easy. You, I got knocked down with a punch, you know? And all we talked about was just before we went through the curtain, I just mentioned, so you, what are we going to do, Rick? And he goes, don't worry about it, Bob. Just remember the figure four and listen to me. And that was it. He went in the ring and everything you see that we did, he told me to do from poking his eyes to whatever. And that's the way I like to work. So that's the way I was trained, actually. Listen to the guy or you listen to me, you know. Absolutely. But it was an honor to work with him. Yeah, that's cool. Um I, I wanted to kind of bring it to like uh, uh, 28th of February, 94. This is in my research. If I'm wrong, please let me know. Uh, it's on Saturday night in a loss to the boss, AKA Ray trailer. Um, what led to, I think this was your last match at WCW at the time. What led to, uh, to decide a change of scenery, I guess. And, and how did you end up going to the WWF? I actually just had kind of a little falling out with somebody. Uh, something something happened between me and someone that involved money and it just rubbed me the wrong way. And I, and I was tired anyways, and getting tired. I was tired of being hurt. And, and then I just quit. Not that they didn't care if I quit or not, cause I was a nobody. And then uh, Jimmy Backlund, who I mentioned earlier, Jimmy Joe, right. He was working for WWF in 95 with uh, Tom Pritchard as the new heavenly body. The Jim Cornette was managing. And uh, Jimmy called me and he said, you want to work for WWF? And I, yeah, sure. That's how he started doing TV for them. And that was fun. WWF compared to WCW was just so much more laid back. You made more money. They flew you everywhere, paid for your hotel, rent a car. I mean, WCW paid for rent a cars and hotels, but they didn't fly you everywhere. And I hated to fly, but it is easier to get places. 
Yeah, I can imagine. Um, you, you mentioned something earlier, which again is not in my questions, but uh, I'd asked about the incident with Eric and, and Rick backstage. Were, were there any instance, in, instances of, uh, you know, conflict backstage uh, that you witnessed? And are there any stories that you could share on the show here? I'm going to be boring because I don't recall any time anybody getting in a fight. No, fair enough. That's cool. Um, Which I'm glad. I mean, most of us got along pretty good back in those days. I mean, obviously, the fact that you're asking me about stories that happened that I wasn't part of, they happened. It just was very, very rare. Yeah, fair enough. Um, WWF, uh, I want to know some of your fondest memories there. In my research, I did a deep dive and I read something about how um, Scott Hall got you so drunk one night that you couldn't walk. Um, could you tell me about any you know fun times in the World Wrestling Federation? Well, I mean, that was fun. I knew Scott uh, since Florida wrestling in 87. He came into Florida. And so I knew him then when he was in WCW. You know, uh, I knew him there. And so he was just always cool to me. And I remember in WCW, I was sitting in the restaurant with Scott when he was the diamond stud. And we're just sitting there and he's kind of down in the domes. And I was like, Scott, you need to go to the WWF. Vince will make you a star. And look what happened. I had nothing to do with it, but I actually said that to him. And he's like, oh, I appreciate it, Bob. And he went there and he became a star. And obviously, he's the one who did it, but Vince gave him the opportunity. But that, so could, just to show you what kind of guy Scott Hall is, we're sitting in the bar the night that we're drinking. And uh, some guy comes up to Scott and gives him a Razor Ramon uh, Hasbro action figure, mint in the package. He's like, Scott, I, I got this for you. Do you have that? And Scott's like, no, I don't have that. I appreciate it. The guy gives it to Scott. Scott takes a picture, signs an autograph, whatever. And the guy leaves. And Scott goes, Bob, you got a kid, right? And I said, yeah. He goes, well, here, give him that. And he gave me the figure to give to my kid. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> yeah, he was always a cool guy. Yeah, I, I think Scott Hall, I, if anyone asks me, usually he's the one that I say is my favorite wrestler um just always always dug his work i actually um, made the most money ever for one match wrestling scott hall in 87 at the orange bowl in miami no less with over twenty thousand people there and uh we were the first match at the great american bash the second war games match you know with dusty and nikita and the four horsemen all that and uh i was the opening match against scott hall went a minute and 30 seconds or something you know one of those where i attack him before the bell boom boom he reverses it power slam leg drop one two three but i got paid good for that you know thanks scott <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome that's awesome um okay uh another question i had um we have uh, ever hopeful when you're in the WWF that there might be a, an opportunity for like a push, uh, a story, an angle, uh, something of that nature. I know that you're doing a lot of like the tapings uh, for superstars and, 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 and things of that nature. Um, but were there, you know, any discussions at all at, at any point of, of you doing anything else? Nope, there wasn't. <laughs> you know, I gradually, as most people go along in their career, obviously until they get to a certain age, but I slowly got in worse shape as years went on. By the time I went to the WWF, I was like in the worst shape of my life, opposed to what I am now, obviously. But uh, so no, nothing. But they were always cool to me. They treated me real well. I have no problem with WWF. I and mean, people like to talk about like Shawn Michaels. Shawn Michaels was cool as heck back then to me personally. You know, he was just happy-go-lucky, laid back, fun to hang around. You know who wasn't that way? Bret Hart. Bret really? Hart. 
was the Shawn Michaels people think Shawn Michaels is, in my opinion, when I was there. He was always walking around like he was better than everybody, always walking around like he was miserable, kind of like he is today. And that's my opinion of Bret Hart. We'd go to the bar afterwards. Bret would be sitting by himself, all the rest of the, boy, rest of the boys, Sean, everybody. We're having fun. Bret's off moping in the corner. Now, that might not have happened all the time. I'm saying my experience being around him. So I, suck on that, people. <laughs> I, I always ask anyone who might have been in the general vicinity of one Mr. Perfect, Kurt Hennig, if uh, you, you were ever... Uh, ribbed by by Kurt, or if you ever witnessed a rib from Kurt, can you share any stories there? No, I I, I was around him very little. Uh, in Memphis, in '88, we were there. Me and a friend called uh, we were called the Mighty Yankees wore masks uh, with uh, Jerry Gray was my partner. We were actually the Florida Tag Team Champions, so we weren't always losers. Or I should say, I wasn't always a loser. We beat Mike Graham and Steve Kern on television. <laughs> but anyways. Uh, I remember Kurt took one of our masks for the main event because he had to attack Jerry Lawler or something. But yeah, I, I wasn't around Kurt. I think Kurt's one of the best ever, though. Uh, Steve Kern tells a fun rib about Kurt Henning, or a, a rib that he played on Kurt Henning, though. I don't know if you ever heard that story. No. But this was in Memphis. Uh, Kurt got off the airplane and 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 he's in his car. And I and Steve's with him, I guess. I, I'm trying to remember the story. It's been he, he, Steve told me the story like in '87 and or '88. Uh, and the cops pull him over, and they arrest Kurt for statutory rape. And Steve's like, you know, Kurt's panicking. You know, you know, I didn't, what do I didn't do that? But they, they put him in handcuffs, put him in the car, and they let him off the hook. It was a rib that Steve was playing on Kurt. And but the funniest part of the story would have been if it would have went how Steve wanted, but they didn't have the time to do it because they had to do a show that night. But what Steve wanted them to do was take Kurt all the way to jail. Now I'm remembering the story better. Steve wasn't actually, you know, with Kurt, but all this took place. Steve wanted to be sitting in the jail cell reading the newspaper when Kurt was put into the jail cell. And Steve would just look over, hey, Kurt, you know, but they didn't have time to do that. <laughs> uh, but gee, what I it wonder. was is that steve you know steve and the fabulous ones you know kind of ruled memphis for years so they made friends with all the local cops and everything so he just had a cop friend <laughs> play the prank on him i thought because it's hilarious steve tells the story better obviously because it's his rib but <laughs> <laughs> excellent stuff uh I, I know uh you know towards the the later end of the 90s uh you, you started to wind down your career what what led to um you uh you know retiring from pro wrestling you know i just got tired of getting hurt all the time i got tired of being in pain all the time even though i'm in pain all the time now it's just one of those things you just get tired of it and I found a job locally working for an airport limo service. And it was such a good job, you know, sitting on my butt. All I had to do was drop people off, pick them up, you know, it was very easy. Uh, and I just you kind of fell in that rut where I just didn't care anymore. And I still did, you know, in just, you know, wrestling all, you know, independent stuff and for several years, just not all the time. That's another thing. Back when we did WCW, you know, we'd leave like on a Sunday night late get back on Thursday and then we do independent shows every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday somewhere in Florida too. So we were always, you know, working besides WCW. 
Right. Um, and in those days, when you do an independent show, they you know WCW superstars. If you're on TV, they put you over on the you know it's Bob Cook WCW superstar. You know, which isn't <laughs> true, but that's how they would gimmick it. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I noticed that uh, I think it was 2010. Uh, you came out of retirement. Uh, to work every now and then. Uh, you did a lot of Blanca Cup Battle Royals as well. Uh, how, how was it, you know, after all that time coming out of retirement to, to wrestle again? Well, you know, the reason I did it in 2010 was because of Rick Ryder. He, right down the road here, we had a place. Rick had run a show every year for years at this place, right down the road called the Panagoda Memorial Auditorium. And, uh, he would do a benefit show and him and I would either be in the main event or somebody. We actually, one of the matches we had, there was so much fun. It was uh, Hercules Hernandez and I against Lanny Popful and Rick. And then one match was Lanny and I against uh, uh, Fred Altman and Rick and just different matches we had. It was just to put Angel Popful involved, but uh, Rick had called me and said he wanted to do a show for Make-A-Wish and he wanted me to put it together because Rick had been out of the business for a long time. And he knew that I still hung around guys and new guys and, Brian Blair does this thing in Tampa called Legends Lunches. And we all get together every three months. And we were doing that too. So we had connections, you know. And uh, like an idiot, I told Rick, I said, Well, yeah, I don't, I'll put it together. Do you care if I work the show? <laughs> he goes, I don't care. And in my mind, and I always for years have said I wanted to wrestle again because I was hoping it would motivate me to get in shape. And it never worked, but that was always my motivation. Even then, you know, but for that show, I, I put together the show it was me as a mass superstar and I got a friend of mine, another friend of mine against Brian Blair, Jerry Gray and Bugs McGraw in the main event. It was just like a, a reunion of old friends. That's how I looked at it, you know. And the yeah. night before the show uh, was Jack Briscoe's funeral. So <laughs> that was another big event. Right. So like, how did it feel after all that time to get in the ring and, and take a bump? <laughs> well, it wasn't horrible because I had uh, been training my son and a few other people in a ring locally. I never took a lot of bumps, but it wasn't bad. I didn't take a lot of bumps that night either. Trust me. You know, I felt, I felt it the next day, but it was fun. All my neighbors were there and family and, you know, in-laws I don't talk to anymore. You know why? Cause I'm not with my wife anymore. So, you know, <laughs> in-laws aren't really family they're forced family when one goes they all go that's what I say. <laughs> but my kid um, he still talks to all his in-laws so i don't know yeah um so you did bring it up earlier and i wanted to ask a little bit about it uh, joe malenko's last match 29th of september 2017 against the dog pound um <laughs> you tagged together uh how did it go and you know uh how's your relationship with joe these days Oh, I love Joe. We don't talk a lot. He comes to the Legends lunches. Every once in a while, he'll send me an email or, I mean, not an email, but a messenger. We'll message back and forth. But he's always, we've always had a running gag when we see each other. We ignore each other and stuff. But yeah, I love Joe and he loves me. I know it. Um, but Fred Altman had started a wrestling company called Legends of Professional Wrestling and he had a school a few years ago. And they were doing a tournament and I had just posted on, uh, facebook hey i want to find a partner for you know this tournament kind of joking around and then i said something like boy it'd be really cool if joe malenko would be my partner and joe chimed in let's do it and next thing you know we had the match 
championship not it was like a tournament on Fred's show against the same guys. And that was a really good match. That was a lot of fun. And that's how it led to the next match at the armory. Cause Joe was involved in getting the armory. Oh, this mural of wrestling history is at the armory in Tampa. Cause that's where they held wrestling. Like I had said earlier for decades. And Joe's got this huge mural of historical events at the armory with involving wrestling. And even my pictures on it, darn it. And I never would even wrestled at the armory until that match with Joe. But uh, that's how that match took place. Joe put that show together to raise money for the Miro. And we had a good crowd. It was a full house at the place and just a lot of fun. I mean, it was Joe and I against those guys. The match wasn't any good. But, you know, Brian Blair, Jerry Briscoe, Fred Altman, Bugs McGraw, the Cuban assassin. Uh, and I'm trying to think of other guys, but all local legends were there. They all come to our legends lunch, but it's still cool to have them, you know, there participating in the show. And I don't know. But yeah, I love Joe. I love the Malenkos. That's cool, bro. I love um, everything. You, you mentioned the Legends Luncheon uh, a few times here every three months. So what goes on at these luncheons? Well, there's a few people who like to drink a lot. I've done that a few times. So, you know, but what that what started that was when Hiro Matsuda and Gordon Soli both came down, you know, came down with both got cancer. And Brian put the lunches together as a way to cheer them up. And it started out small. You'd have Mike Graham, Bugsy, Steve Kern, Jerry Briscoe, Jack Briscoe, Gordon, obviously Gordon Hero, and some few other guys at the lunches just to get together every once in a while and talk about the past and forget about the misery of the present. And it's just something that's lasted over 20 years now. And I helped Brian put them together. And every lunch we honor two people, give them a plaque, have them have someone in, induct them or introduce them, you know, tell a story about them. And then they get to speak in front of all the boys. Everybody knows each other, but it's just a fun time. You know, it's just honoring the people. They get their lunch paid for. If you're being honored, I've been honored before. Everybody get everybody that gets honored, gets their name on this big plaque. And once that plaque's full, it's going to go into the wrestling hall of fame in uh, Iowa. I think it's Iowa, wherever that one is. So that's cool. And my name's right at the top. <laughs> but when you look at all the names on that plaque, I mean, it's just filled with legends and yeah, a few not so legendary people like me and some others, but still cool to be on it, you know. And I disagree. You are January 28th, by the way. Oh, cool, cool. Well, that should be fun. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're hoping um, to honor uh, Dennis Knight and Dutch Mantel, last I heard. But oh, cool. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your thoughts on today's wrestling business and, and what's going on there. You know, I, I watched it religiously for years. And when Ronda Rousey left WWE, because I thought Ronda Rousey was awesome before she went to wrestling. And I think she did fantastic in wrestling. And anybody who doesn't think so doesn't understand the business. And there's no real point in arguing with them because they don't understand, you know, but um, I for whatever reason, I just kind of lost interest and I quit watching. And then I started watching again about a year ago and watching all the shows every week. And I just lost interest again. I don't know. It's like the characters just don't interest me enough to stick with it. You know, nothing against anybody. I think everybody in the business today loves what they do. They have a passion for it. They, you know, WWE can call their wrestlers sports entertainers, but I guarantee you everybody in WWE calls themselves pro wrestlers, you know? They may not say it in Vince's face, but if Vince said the sky is green, doesn't make the sky green. So if he said that sports entertainment still doesn't make it not pro wrestling. You know, he's not God. 
I don't think anyway. Let me think. Maybe he is. No, but <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes I feel like he might be the opposite of that. But uh <laughs> no, I have been watching like I watch the clips. Like I go to YouTube and watch, see what happened or whatever. I love the stuff with Roman Reigns and Brock Lesnar. I think this is the best version of Brock Lesnar ever. I just hope they don't put him back with Heyman and take away his ability to show that he actually has a personality, you know, and it's entertaining. Yeah, I get you. I actually was kind of hoping just for a little while, at least that they were going to put them together as like, you know, a, a two man kind of uh, just a destructive force. I just thought that might've been an interesting dynamic before splitting them up and, and going uh, with the angle after that. But, you know, um, it is interesting hey, seeing for wait and see what happens. That's true. Um, I do watch I all the pay-per-views because I have the WWE network. I refuse to call it Peacock. I like it calling it the WWE network. It's the greatest invention ever. And I guarantee you Vince wasn't the one who invented it, but I watch the pay-per-views because I have the network, you know? Yeah. And I, I totally get what you mean about um, losing interest. Like I've tried, I, I think I watched about 16, 17 weeks of AEW. Uh, and then I just tapped out on it. I just couldn't do it anymore. It was just, uh, just couldn't do it. Um, yeah. I was watching that uh, religiously for a few weeks this year, but yeah, I lost interest too. They got so much talent, a lot of talent, but no one that really jumps out and says, Hey, I have to see this guy work against somebody, you know? Yeah. Like Sammy Gavara, whatever his name is. He's a great worker, but I don't care about watching him work. He's 110 pounds, five foot six, looks like a 10 year old was being punished by his parents with a goofy haircut. So I don't want to watch that. And Even MJF, who was there, <laughs> MJF entertains me, but he's getting, you know, boring too now. Yeah. With Sammy Guevara, I just, uh, you know, he beat Miro for his, the TNT championship or whatever it's called. And uh, it really annoyed me because, you know, Miro is a man and I don't think Sammy Guevara can grow facial hair. Um. <laughs> but they're all more successful than me. So I, I'm not really knocking them. I just don't have any interest in watching religiously. I understand. Um, I mean, it's great that guys like Arn Anderson and Dean Malenko and Dustin Rhodes, who, by the way, I like to say, had his first match ever. It's great that they all are able to, you know, keep doing what they love. I wish I could get a job behind the scenes like that. Not as a agent, you know, where you like, you know, they have people who go over matches with guys, but I want to be a detailed guy because I see guys do small things that mean a lot wrong. You know I mean? You could have the greatest match ever, but if you do the little things that mean everything wrong, then the whole match isn't right, you know? Exactly. As I said earlier with Arn Anderson, it's just, he's just stomping you and you're laying on the ground. He's just stomping you. It was such, it's a small detail in that whole matchup, but it meant so much when I watched it. I was like, my God. <laughs> that's the way it is. A lot of people don't realize it. Sometimes the smallest things mean the most. I mean, that's why you go back and you talk about Ronda Rossi. She got the business quicker than anybody I've ever seen. She had the greatest debut. It doesn't matter if they rehearsed it. It was perfect. And she didn't look rehearsed, whereas most people look rehearsed. Like most of the divas are, well, what do they call them? Lady wrestlers, sorry. You know, it's so just choreographed. And that's fine. That's the way the business is. But she never came across that way. That's why people didn't like her so much. Because they thought, because she didn't wrestle like everybody else, she didn't know how to wrestle. Mm -hmm. But that's not the way she should have been doing it, you know? But she would do little things like, 
pantomime to the crowd, facial expressions, and, and just acting out things that guys should learn early and do because it makes it believable. She was doing it. You know, I mean, she, she had that rare ability, like Jerry Lawler had that ability where he could make a crowd react just by a facial expression, a wink of his eye, move, you know, a movement of his head. It's just that rare ability to connect with an audience. And she did that. Even in, I mean, her very first match where she's got Stephanie in the arm hold and she looks to the crowd. I mean, nobody does that stuff, you know, the way she did it. It's, I don't know. Maybe I'm just biased because she's hot and I got a stand up of her right there. <laughs> no, I know what you mean, because every time I saw her wrestle, I felt like I don't know what to expect. I'm on the edge of my seat because like, she's not like everyone else. I felt like I don't know what's about to happen, but something cool was about to happen. Yeah, and she had great matches with even Nia Jax, who, you know, who had a good match with Nia Jax. <laughs> not too many people. Not many, if any. Uh, <laughs> um, Bob, uh, we're getting right to the talent here of the interview. Uh, I just want to ask you, is there anything that you would like to plug or let anyone know out there? You know, what's going on with Bob Cook these days? Well, I would say because uh, I have the opportunity and you just asked me as I'm the media, what do they call it? The social media coordinator or director coordinator, I don't know, for the Cali Farrell Alley Club. I, mean, I basically just post things on their websites and you know instagram facebook twitter but my thing is everybody in the business and every wrestling fan because you can join as a wrestling fan should join the cali for alley club every wrestling school should promote joining the cali for alley club because it's the only organization nonprofit organization that gives back to the wrestling business helps guys when they're in financial need for whether it's you know can't pay their bills for whatever reason you know hospital bills whatever sickness whatever they help out and they've been doing it for over 55 years. Brian Blair, who's one of my great friends. I like to plug the good ones uh, is the president and everybody should join CaliforAlleyClub.org. It's only like $29 a year, whatever it is, or a lifetime membership, $300. A lot of people are lifetime member. Terry Funk, Dory Funk, lifetime member, Jerry Lawler, you know, all these people, <laughs> but everybody should join, including fans. Because obviously Definitely. again, again, Fans are allowed to join because Definitely. the money raised through memberships and various get togethers. They do the reunion every year is for that purpose. And it doesn't take a genius. And although we know wrestling fans are far from geniuses, <laughs> it doesn't take a genius to realize that more people who join, the more people we can help. So, and there's a lot of people they've helped. I mean, they've helped Paul Orndorff, Coco Beware, uh, a lot of people. I'm just, I'm telling, I'm telling you names that have allowed us to tell names. They've helped people who don't want people to know because who wants people to know that something's wrong and they need money, yeah. but, but they've helped so many people over the years, legends and, you know, lots of people. Definitely. And then everyone out there, if you look in the description on YouTube, when this comes out, all of the information will be in the description. You should definitely do it because it's a good cause. Uh, Bob Cook, we're getting to the end here of the interview and we've got our final segment, as I told you earlier, five second frenzy. The rule is you have five seconds to answer each question, but... Uh, you know, even if you break the five-second rule, it's okay. You won't get in trouble. Um, but quick-fire questions with quick-fire answers. Bob Cook, the first one is, who is your favorite wrestler of all time? Terry Funk. Fantastic choice. You said it before, but I'll ask you to say it again. Your favorite opponent over the years? Rick Ryder. Excellent. Uh, 
one match, if you could pick one match that you performed in over the years that you're most proud of, what is your favorite? Favorite? Wow. You know, Rick Ryder, it's got to be. I mean, you know, cage match at this place. And I know it's five seconds, but we had a cage match okay. in a place called uh, the Wellfield, right up the road from me. 1987, it's 40 degrees out. We had 500 people there. People, you know, my, my, I can think back, my wife, my grandmother, my mom, my sister are sitting in the front row covered in blankets. You know, everybody's freezing. But we had this wild back and forth bloodbath. And it was just one of the funnest matches I've ever had. And I got it on tape, you know, from the old camcorder gimmick and stuff. But more than five seconds, but that match is one of my favorites. I had a lot of favorite matches, don't get me wrong. But that was one of my favorites. Excellent, excellent. That's okay again if you break the five seconds. Um, moving away from wrestling now, do you have a favorite book? Not really. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I mean, I've read fine. a few books. If you, if you want a wrestling books, one of the best wrestling books I've ever read was The Grappler Lynn Denton. Oh, cool. It's very good. He's a great guy, too. Very cool guy. Awesome, awesome. Big fan of Len. Uh, favorite TV show, Bob? Oh, boy, five seconds. I mean, there's so many of them. It's hard to pick your favorite TV show, but God, I'm going to go with Californication. I don't know. (laughs) There's so many. I've watched that show probably four times from start to finish, but I have a bad memory. So every six months or so, I legitimately can watch something and very vaguely remember what I'm watching, which is good. Early stage Alzheimer's. Don't knock it until you tried it. (laughs) <laughs> no, that is good because I, I would love to watch uh, the Shawshank Redemption for the first time again. Um, but there's so will, many great shows. I mean, Seinfeld was a classic show. Okay, you want my all-time, all-time, all in the family. There, my all-time favorite. <laughs> I went way back for you. <laughs> uh, the next one is favorite film. Viva Knievel, because I've loved uh, Evil Knievel since I was five years old, and I was lucky enough to become friends with him. And although a lot of people don't like that movie, he starred as himself as a uh, battling drug dealers. Uh, But yeah, it's my I saw it like five times in 1977 where all the other dweebs were watching Star Wars. I was watching (laughs) Viva Knievel. (laughs) Nice. Uh, Favorite musical artist? Boy. Right now, as far as uh, Pink, <laughs> not in history, though, but I, I saw her in concert uh, with my friend a couple years ago. She's fantastic. Unbelievable. I'll never go see another concert again because I'll always compare it to hers and I'll never compare. Why waste the money? <laughs> fantastic. Fair enough. Fair enough bro. Uh, moving away from the arts now, favorite food? Probably just a greasy hamburger with bacon on it. Yeah, and cheddar stuff. cheese, cheddar cheese, not American cheese, cheddar cheese. There's a difference. Very good, Very good choice. Uh, favorite place to eat on the road? Well, I don't know, probably Waffle House. That's where we all ate. You know, <laughs> a lot of crazy things went, went on at a bar in Atlanta at the airport Ramada, but there was a Waffle House right next door where some other crazy things went on. There was this one woman who worked, the, never mind, we won't get into that. <laughs> but she worked at the Waffle House and she was, she was, she, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Waffle House is always the number one answer. Uh, next question, favorite alcoholic beverage? Yeah, I'm not a drinker really, but when I did have drinks, it was always this vodka and orange juice. Start with very little vodka, lots of orange juice. And as the night went on, it's mostly vodka. <laughs> you know, I never had a drink in my life until I was 28 years old. Really? Wow. And it was Axel Rotten is the reason I started drinking. 
<laughs> and not because he helped me start drinking. He made me start drinking because of who he was. Think about that. <laughs> no, fair enough. Uh, the second last one, Bob. Favorite female body part. You look at a good looking lady like a Ronda Rousey. What do the eyes go to first? Well, I love the abs. You know, that's like when you go back and you like to look at Pink when she was in the best shape of her life around 2010 or whatever. You know, they're like the abs and they got that little V gimmick that goes down the <laughs> side of the legs. I don't know how to even describe it. All I know is it's fantastic if you're lucky enough to have it. <laughs> yeah, it's fan- that's a fantastic answer. And the last one, Bob, favorite curse word. Oh, you don't want to know that one, do you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm Australian, so... It's the um, word that starts with a C. All right. See you next time. And my friend Penelope Paradise, who was, like I said, my manager and I see the lady wrestler, and the one who was in a match with Malenko. I always used to tell, especially when we were drinking, i say, what's my favorite word? And she'd take my glasses off and put them on because she looked so sexy with my glasses on. And she'd <laughs> say the word real slow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to say it because, hey, I don't know what kind of standards you have. <laughs> well, look, look, I'll, I'll make it easy for you. The, the word is cunt. Uh, Bob Cook is trying to say cunt. It is my favorite word, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Bob Cook, I want to thank you so much for your time to be on the show here, the Insider's Edge podcast. Um, you know, and I think it's really important for me. You know, look, I, I wasn't watching uh, NWA or WCW back in the early 90s because I didn't become a wrestling fan until 1998. But when I dug into the history of pro wrestling and watched a lot of stuff. I recognized that right hand of yours. I recognized how good of a worker you were. And I just want to say that it's important. I live in the most isolated city in the world, Perth, Western Australia. So you've reached all that way from across the planet to right here. And you have my respect, sir. So I hope you are very proud of what you accomplished in pro wrestling. I appreciate that. And you know who started that whole right hand punch thing? Hey. Bill Watts. I, I know that you want to go, but I was wrestling Van right. Hammer at WCW uh, Center Stage in Atlanta. And after the match, I was upstairs getting a Coke, and Pee Wee Anderson, rest in peace, Pee Wee, came up and said, Cook, Watts wants to see you. And back in those days, it meant, well, you probably aren't going to be happy. But I came down and, and came in the hallway, and all the guys are there and watched. And he goes, hey, I want to tell you guys something. Bob throws the best punch I've ever seen next to mine. He threw that in there. And from now on, I want you all to sell it. And I want the announcers to put it over. And that's when he asked me to go help teach Eric how to throw a punch. But Bill Watts is the one who started all that and, and made everybody do it. And then he just kind of went along with it. When I worked for WWF with Jim Ross's calling name matches, he always put my punch over. And But that's how that started. Awesome. Well, thank you for that uh, nice piece of minutiae there, that bit of information there, Bob. I uh, really appreciate your time on the show. It was a joy for me to, to learn a little bit about your time in pro wrestling. So thank you again. I appreciate you asking, and I'm sorry I uh, put it off for so long, but I don't like to be in front of the camera. I'm shy. Plus, it's, it's really early for most people, or early in the morning for most people, but it's my bedtime. <laughs> I sleep during the day. well fair enough bob thank you again i really appreciate it my friend all right thanks for having me on no worries sir and thank you everyone out there for watching the inside so long from the sunshine state
<laughs> on the WCWA Network. I'm California alongside my new friend, Bob Cook, and we will see you down the road. Thank you.